Good morning, good morning. Everybody doing good? Yeah, smile. Let me see your faces. Are you happy? Some of you got to tell your faces you're happy. My name is Pastor Derek, if you don't know who I am, and uh, welcome to Connect. We're in a series called The Last Days, and actually today is the last day of the last days of the series, <laughs> in case you got nervous. Uh, so you can get your worship guides out, you can get your Bibles out for you Bible thumpers. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 24 and Luke 19. Those are the two main texts of the day. There's a lot of scripture in this one. Um, and uh, just to quickly review the series, for those of you catching up, um, this is a kind of a, a high doctrine series. Uh, the Bible tells us to watch our life and doctrine closely. So this series is really dedicated to uh, a lot of what we believe, but it's also important to have what we believe in per proper perspective. And so um, the lens that we've been looking through as we delve into the, the life of the subject has been not so much to focus on prophetic sequence or, you know, how this, a road map to the return of Christ and things like that, but more to look at how the last days affect me when, on my last day, being prepared for my last day here on earth, looking from the, my potentially my last day to now and saying, how can I maximize this time? How do I um, make sure that I am about the business of God? And how do I make sure that I have an eternal perspective? Are you understanding what I'm saying, guys? So a lot of times we get caught up in, um, in the interpretations of thing and the information of thing instead of getting really caught up in how it inspires us to live a different life in the here and now, make the most of the time that we have here on earth. And so uh, as we delve into the subject today, the last day of the last days, and we're talking about the second coming of Christ uh, specifically today, I've only taught on this one other time many years ago, kind of from a little bit of a different perspective. It was actually during an Easter series, believe it or not. It was po uh, the week after Easter, and we were just kind of answering some questions, you know, on why did Jesus have to die, what about the resurrection, and when will he be coming back? It was called the Trilogy, for those of you here way back in the day. That's the last time I talked about this, and, the, and so I want to talk about it today. Uh, first, I'll just kind of say personally, um, this particular subject, when I was younger, and this may apply to where you're at now, so don't necessarily apply this to you in terms of your chronology, but just maybe your maturity. But I can remember when I was a teenager looking at this particular subject, um, I struggled with uh, how the second coming of Christ would uh, interrupt my life and plans. Um, you know, and, and, and as I unpack this, let me just say that some people, you know, just think this is a fairy tale, God's coming back, and yeah, whatever. Uh, most people in this room probably wouldn't be in that perspective. Some people, although you might be, uh, some people kind of believe he's coming back, but they put the whole subject, because of the, the, the size of it, on the shelf. And then some people in this room get caught up, kind of, uh, many get caught up, like, in the sequence of things, and the details of things, and, um, you know, want to get into the speculative uh, prophetic happenings. But as a teenager, so that's kind of the group, and I'm going to be dealing, by, by the way, with mostly that, that, that group of people that get caught up into the details of it all today. And for those of you who like to go deep, this is going to go <laughs> a little deep pretty quick in a little bit. But let me get into the shallow waters again. So I was a young teen, was uh, hearing about this particular subject, and I just, honestly, I saw it as a massive interruption into what I wanted to do you know, especially as a teenager. You know, uh, uh, what if I don't get married? What if, you know, 
Uh, what if uh, I, I, I never, you know, uh, have a girlfriend? What if, and you guys can fill in the blanks after that, um, what if, you know, and then the, 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 conversely, there was the other side of it was, what if um, I'm in the middle of doing those things that I want to do, bad, good, you know, my plans, my agenda, whatever, uh, let's just say it's bad things, you know, um, and what if he came back then? You know, um, that wouldn't be good, and I was always scared of, you know, I was kind of had this look at God like he's, he's up there like Zeus, and he's ready to zap me at any moment, or he maybe come back and, ha ha, I caught you, you know, doing something wrong, and I'm going to miss out, you know, and I would be ultimately left behind. And so I had this kind of tormenting relationship with God and a tormenting connection to this particular subject. Does anybody know what I'm talking about out there just a little bit? So and during this time when I was growing up, they had a, 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 a series of movies that came out. There were three of them, and uh, it was called Thief in the Night. This is dating my, myself just a little bit. And does anybody remember Thief in the Night just a little bit? Oh, they were horrible. It was a horrible, just terrorizing movie series, and it was... It was, in, it was, it was, its purpose was to just kind of scare the fire out of you and uh, make, you know, and, um, you know, I can just remember watching the movie and the guy comes home from work and, 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 and the, the, the razor is buzzing in the bathroom sink because it fell in and nobody's there and the TV's talking about all these catastrophic events that are happening all over the world and people are vanishing and people are, and, I'm, and the guy's looking around the room trying to find everybody and everybody's gone, you know, and he was left behind and, and so there was these kind of two uh, polar, you know, opposite uh, perspectives. You know, one is, this is kind of a massive interruption. And two, what if it mess, you know, it kind of messes up what, what you know, what I want to do. And then the other side of it is, uh, uh, I'm scared to death. Like, I don't want to miss out. And, and I, I want to kind of put a more responsible perspective. Some of you are probably like, I wish you'd come back today. So there's that whole group too, because uh, of all the problems that we're facing in this life. But um, I want to kind of put a more responsible vantage, uh, come from a more responsible vantage point as we talk about this this morning. And uh, again, I'm going to kind of, as we focus in, I'm going to address some of the modern teaching that's out there that frankly, as, as your pastor, I have a concern about. And I want to share some of those concerns with you because our response to the teachings and even some of the and some of the teachings themselves kind of bother me. Um, and in some respects, it's why I've kind of danced around the topic a little bit and danced around questions over many years. And, and, and I think the reason is because if we're not careful, many of us can get consumed with the teachings of the second coming of Christ. And uh, frankly, what happens is it can go to extremes. Um, we get distracted. We, we have a distorted sometimes theology. Uh, we can even frankly get weird. I'm going up to New Hampshire uh, uh, this week to vacation, and, and, and a lot of times we'll pop over into uh, Hampton Beach on the boardwalk, if anybody's ever been to the boardwalk. And there's this particular gentleman, and in the early years I used to confront him because he bothered me, uh, but now I just pray for him. But he'd wear this, in the early years, he'd wear a sandwich board, and on the front of the sandwich board would just be this whole doom and gloom, you're going to hell, message, Christ is coming back like to today, at any second now, and he'd be passing out tracks, and, 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 uh, and, and, and there was just that crazy side, you know, and then, so you can have those kind of situations, those kind of people, and I'm sure his intentions, of course, are good, but methodology, I had a question, um, and uh, nobody wants to laugh, nobody wants to smirk, nobody wants to say anything, you all know it's funny, um, but uh, 
And then you got then you got the other you got people you know you get your seminary people they come out and the, you know they have more degrees than Dr. Fahrenheit as my father would say they're smart as could be but uh, but they're all wrapped up in, in in what they believe and 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 they and they they want to tell you what they believe and they get crazy and many get caught up in the the systemizing of uh, prophetic charts and roadmaps to the return of Christ and and other subjects which I'll mention in a little while and and as a result. We can get distracted by that. We can get totally consumed with that stuff. And what happens is people stop doing the will and the work of God. This is the byproduct sometimes of the excesses. And this is exactly what the enemy wants, and it's exactly what I want to caution this morning and, and try to do through this entire series. On the other side of the coin, some people here um, hear this subject, in particular a popular um, and uh, actually very new teaching uh, that I'll share with you in a few minutes regarding the second coming of Christ and the result of this receptivity to this new teaching and popular teaching is people become lethargic, people become complacent spiritually, and, and in essence, people just are kind of waiting around, making sure we don't make any mistakes, um, but waiting around, just waiting for the bus to just kind of pick us up, waiting for the elevator to take us to the top floor. We're just hanging on uh, for the return of Christ, uh, but we're in a complacent, lethargic state. Are you tracking with me out there? And so I think, is anybody out there? Hello, 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 hello. So you can talk back at me once in a while. I personally believe, though, that, that, that some of this stuff is sponsored and inspired by the enemy to, to sidetrack her from what is most important and what actually Jesus encouraged us to do until, uh, before his return. And so what is the focus? What I want to talk to you about now, I want to give you three points on what is the focus of the last days, uh, in, the, in particular the return of Christ. What should our focus be until he returns? And I want to read to you from Luke chapter 19, and this is uh, from the New King James translation, which I, it's kind of a, just a good study Bible for me when I'm... Um, having to go into deeper theological things. It's a word-for-word translation. So that's why I'm in it. A lot of t- I usually teach from the NIV or the NLT. But uh, lately, I've been a lot in the New King James, just because of the subject. But Luke 19, verse 11, uh, let me just um, tell you, 11 kind of just gives a little context for this. It says, Now as they heard these things, this is speaking to the disciples, Jesus, he spoke another parable. I'll unpack that parable in a second and read that to you. Because he was near Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem is where Jesus was going to die on the cross. And because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Everybody say immediately. And so here's what's going on here. They, they thought that God was going to establish the kingdom right now. That he was actually... The disciples believed, and they were kind of following him under this premise that he was going to be the king, and he was going to be the king now. Does that make sense? That he was going to kind of rule at this particular point in time. They thought he was staying, but instead he was going. And he was about to give them some instruction. And he told them all along that he was going to do this, but they just couldn't hear it. They weren't really getting it. Uh, They weren't um, hearing, uh, seeing the signs and the signals about it. And so he, he was basically saying, not only am I not staying, I'm going, and that I have some instructions for you on how to live until I return. And this parable tells kind of what those what the focus should be. And so in verse 12, he says, Therefore, Jesus said, a certain nobleman, here's his story, went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And so very similar parallel to the return of Christ. So he called 10 of his servants. Servants in this translation represent believers. Delivered to them 10 minas. Uh, a mina is a, is, one mina is the equivalent of two and a half years' salaries. This is a lot of dough here. And he said to them, do business till I come. Everybody say that. Do business till I come. 
So here's the focus, here's the instruction, here's the main thing uh, of this particular parable and what he's telling the, the, the disciples. But his citizens, now the citizens were the unbelievers, they hated him. And it, that's, what's that's what citizens represents in this text. And sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. That's what the world is saying, we reject you. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you are faithful and very little. Have authority over ten cities. So notice responsibility, uh, the importance of responsibility. This is consistent with the, with the series that we've been talking about even a couple of messages ago. Uh, and this is really what's going on in heaven. Uh, there's responsibility in heaven. Verse 18, And the second came, saying, Master, your mind has earned five. Likewise, he said to him, You also are over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mind, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. Or you could say, hidden under a bushel. And, and he says, For I Look at the attitude of this particular servant, this particular believer. Not, not a good one. For I feared you because you are an austere man. Our relationship with God is affected by how we view God, our perspective of God. If your relationship will always be affected by your view and perspective of him. I feared you, for you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, how are you judged? By your own mouth, your own actions, I will judge you, you wicked servant. He's speaking to a believer now, servant representing believer. You, know, you knew that I was an austere man since you thought that, you knew that. Collecting what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow, why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take that from him and give it to the one who has ten. But they said to him, Master, he already has ten. So you can see that you can lose and gain rewards based on your behaviors. Again, consistent with what we talked about in week four of the series. For I say to you that everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. This is what he's speaking to believers. So you can get in, but you have different levels of reward while you're there. So speaking of eternity. Then verse 27, he's talking to the unbelievers. But bring here those unbelievers of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Very strong parable uh, talking and giving us instruction. And this, this, this parable, these coming verses, they, they talk to believers and unbelievers about, uh, about judgment. Uh, we talked about that in our D-Day message. And this text reveals that servants and, sub servants and uh, subjects or servants and citizens, believers and unbelievers, we can, will be judged. We'll both be judged. Believers and unbelievers will be judged. And, and we'll, but we'll also see, more importantly in this chapter, and what Jesus is trying to tell us, that we all have a job to do. And so I wanted you to see the consistency with the message we talked about in week four, but I also want you to see, more importantly, the focus of this particular parable to you and I, to the church of Jesus Christ, is that we have a job to do while he's gone. Our focus should be to do business until he comes. And it bothers me about some of the modern teaching today regarding the second coming, in particular the response to it. Not so much the theology of it, but the response to it. It tends to pull us away from the agenda of God. And it diverts and it distorts. But our job is very clear. In fact, Jesus referred to his job or his responsibility when he was on earth and modeled that for us as an example. And 1 Corinthians, it talks about follow, you know, that he left an example for us. Paul said, follow my example as I follow Christ. Christ said things like, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. It talks about that in John 4. In John 14, he said, I want the world to know I love God. 
Well, we all love God. But then he said, but I do exactly what my father tells me to do. In other words, he was busy about his father's business, and we're supposed to do the same thing until Christ comes back. Does that make sense? So what, is, what are those things? Here's a few things for your notes. Now, here's some, um, some, our job is to witness. Everybody say witness. Acts 1.8 says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you shall be my witnesses. And it says, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's basically saying your immediate sphere of influence, and then basically beyond until you're actually globally influencing people. How do we globally influence people when my sphere of influence is maybe only this big? Your sphere of influence is so big. How do we do that? By being a part of a local church. That's how. When you join your talents your resources, your prayers, your efforts, your time with other people, that is how we extend our influence beyond uh, just our own personal influence. Does that make sense? We impact people. The church is therefore the hope of the world. So it's so important to be connected to a local church because that is how you can actually fulfill uh, some of these responsibilities or let's just say job description of a Christian to be a witness. And so we partner with ministry. We do ministry that accomplishes this as a church. And your involvement in the vision of Connect, for example, makes it possible to fulfill Scripture like this. Here's another thing we do. We love. Everybody say love. So we're called, our job is to witness, is to love. Matthew twenty two thirty nine 39 tells us to love your neighbor as yourself. We're also called to serve. Everybody say serve. serve. It's interesting that Scripture says in Matthew 23, 11, it's not in your notes, I don't think, but the Bible says the greatest among you is the servant of all. So the greatest job, the greatest role is to serve. I could talk a lot about serving, and there's tons of text on serving, but interesting that the highest, let's just say, uh, role in the kingdom of God, the economy of God, is to be a servant. In fact, I used to, I talked about this before, but, uh, you know, an apostle, if there was an org chart in Christianity, I used to think the apostle was kind of like the top dog. And every time an apostle introduces himself in the New Testament, he'll say he's a servant first. Interesting. Interesting. So the more mature we are, the more we tend to be servant-oriented. So if we're not serving, we're not doing the will and the work of God as he's instructed us to do. We should be serving. Number four is we should give. Everybody say give. give. Now, there's tons of scripture on this, but I just thought I'd highlight one. First Timothy 6 tells uh, those who teach to command those who are rich in this world to give generously. You say, well, I'm not rich. Well, listen, I just went to the Dominican Republic, and I realized that I'm rich because rich is a matter of perspective. When I saw that people, we, 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 we actually uh, were part of, you know, of, uh, and participated in a, a lot of the development of some of the communities down in the Dominican Republic where, you know, they didn't have at different times running water, electricity, uh, a bathroom, you know, things like that. And it's just mind-boggling what our resources and how far they can go in a different place. And so when you, when you give, you may not realize this, but every time um, that you give, you're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, how is that possible? Because you're joining your resources. Your, your resources are multiplied, not because of just God's blessing on it, but because when you join them to somebody else, and then they're brokered to get the highest possible return through partnerships. And let me explain. We are partner, as a Connect Community Church, we partner with the Association of Related Churches. So the tithes and offerings that come to this church, we tithe that money into missions. We actually, last year, we did like 12.7% of our budget uh, went towards uh, mission partnerships. One of those is the Association of Related Churches. They plant churches. What I love about our partnership with that, and I hope you can too, is if the church is the hope of the world, 
And statistically, the church is the most effective way uh, to not only help people connect to Jesus Christ, establish a relationship, uh, experience the saving grace of Jesus Christ, but also become a disciple of Jesus Christ. So when we're planting churches, we're effectively uh, making not only decisions, but we're making disciples in the most effective way possible. And the ark has a vision to plant 2,000 churches by the year 2020. Uh, they've, they've, they've planted at this point 400 churches, and in this year alone, they're anticipating to plant 175 churches just in this year, and, and they're on track to do so. And so things are accelerating because I believe the return of Christ is coming, and so, so things are happening faster. God is raising up leaders. People are getting more kingdom-minded. There's more people coming to Christ than any other time in history. Uh, it, it's, it, there's a lot of stats on that, and, and amazing things are happening. But when you give, and your tithes and offerings are making it possible to plant churches. We had a member of our church in the last service who visited a church that we helped plant. And he was sitting in a congregation just like this. He says, experiencing worship just like at Connect, experiencing messages and things that just like at Connect. And um, he goes, and it was just so cool to see that that was an art church. It was a new church, and that we participated in making that possible. So what happens is, we broker that money. When I mean broker, I mean we look for partnerships where the highest possible kingdom return happens and takes place. We do another one throughout. I'm just doing a little parenthetical here because I just want you to know this because sometimes I don't think you know, but we partner with One Hope Ministry. One Hope is a missions organization that wants to bring the word of God to every child in the world. And at this point, they're just under one billion children have received the relevant message of Jesus Christ in a terms in a, in a venue that they can understand it and appreciate it. One billion people. Can you imagine that? And so for every dollar you give, we, we give to that ministry, three children receive the word of God. Isn't that incredible? And so you're participating. So how does that translate to me? Why is that important, Pastor? Because when you get to heaven, you might meet hundreds or thousands of people that are going to come up and shake your hand and say, thank you for contributing. Thank you for giving. Thank you for being about the, the job of the kingdom of God. Because of you, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. You say, I'll meet all those people. Yeah, we have all eternity to meet those people. Yes. And because you gave. So I want you to know that what you do when you give, you serve, you witness, you love, it has eternal implications. Amen. And our, ch- our church's entire vision is geared towards those four things. Our finances are framed even around those things. So that's number one. Number two, don't get sidetracked. Everybody say sidetracked. This is a word my daddy would use, <laughs> sidetracked. I think you're sidetracked, son. I think you're sidelined, son. I'm going to slap you upside your head, son. <laughs> I looked for several uh, particular passages to talk about this, and there was one in Revelation, one in Thessalonians, but I think Matthew 24 does it best. It's the red letter, Jesus speaking edition. The most talk about the second coming of Christ comes from this particular text. And when I was reading it very recently, even uh, just this last week, I saw two words that popped out that really kind of encapsulate uh, this particular message. And the two words were the end or the end. And it just kept coming up. And so look how many times it pops up. I, I almost, uh, you know, I called the whole series this, but Matthew 24, verses uh, 3 through 14, I'm going to read to you, okay? A lot of Bible, I understand. Uh, like I said, if, if for those of you who like to go deep, we're going deep down, oh, deep down, deep down in my soul. You guys don't know that song, but that's okay. Uh, verse uh, 3, it says, Now, he sat on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately saying, this is the disciples coming to Jesus, tell us when these things will be. This is all about the end times and the signs of the end of the age. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end, everybody say the end, 
of the age. And Jesus answered, so they're they're preoccupied with all the signs and when is he coming back and how we know it's the end. And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. Or I'll modernize that and just say, don't get sidetracked. Take heed that no one deceives you. No one gets you, uh, uh, you know, preoccupied with the wrong thing. No one gets you distracted. No one gets you deceived. Don't get sidetracked. Verse 5, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. One translation says, I found the Christ. And will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end, everybody say the end, is not yet. For the nations will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. And these are the beginnings of sorrows. And then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. These are some of the signs. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. That's what happens sometimes, by the way, in the summer. We go on vacation from God, not just from vacation. We've got to be careful. Our love for God doesn't grow cold. Hmm, just felt like I needed to say that. Verse 13, but he who endures to, what's it say? The end shall be saved. Who endures? The people that stay to the end shall be saved. And this gospel, verse 14, the main one I like to reference, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. That word nations or that word world is, 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 is translated ethnos. It's referring to people groups. The world supposedly has a thousand different people groups Uh, 177 different nations. Once the 177 different nations, once the 2,000 people groups have heard the gospel, they have it in in a relevant form that they can understand, maybe where there's churches established or Bibles in hand or whatever, that, you can be sure, that is when the end will come. In fact, we're in a day right now where things are speeding up so fast, you don't have to go to another part of the world, build a Bible school. Uh, you You can have a Bible school in your pocket, and so technology has accelerated. And missiologists have been saying, you know, that the, the, the world could receive the gospel. Uh, you know, they used to say by 2040. Now they're saying things like 2017. The whole world could have, could have heard the gospel because of technology. It's in process. It's, it's, it's close. It's really close. So, again, I'm just sharing these, some of these things. I, I, here's the Bible. This is what it says. And some of these things, I'm just telling you some facts that are there. And then there's sometimes I'm going to have some opinion, and I'll share with you the opinion. But he goes through all these different things, these, these signs. But notice this. Every generation, you may not realize this, but every generation has had these signs. Uh, rumors of wars, wars, pestilences, earthquakes, false prophets. But it wasn't the end. And so we have to be careful and I'll say, but I'll, that being said, even though every generation has had these signs, what's different about our generation and, and, and is that we have the potential to have them all at the same time. And many believe, and I personally believe, that all of these things are happening now. And, and I'll say something about this generation, and that is that, you know, again, none of them have had them all at the same time. But modern teaching has, get, has gotten us sidetracked, studying this and studying that and learning this and learning that. And it causes us to forget about keeping the main thing the main thing, which is do business until I come. And we must preach the gospel of the kingdom, and then, then the end will come. Are you guys following me out there? And there have been many arguments about this for centuries with people. And when I was in seminary, uh, 
sometimes I call it cemetery, but seminary, because it kind of, <laughs> it can sidetrack you. And this was well over 20 years ago, and I know that surprises you because I look so young and handsome. <laughs> I was 10 when I was in there. I was a prodigy. Hardly. I uh, promise you that. But uh, I, 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 when I was in the seminary, uh, I was there, and this was the, this, the whole thing about the second coming of Christ was the number one argument in the seminary. Number one. It's what everybody wanted to, to, to debate about and talk about. And, and, and uh, in fact, some of the classmates, you know, they'd come up to you before they even knew your name, knew, you know, anything about you. And they would, they would ask things like, you know, are you pre, mid, or post? You know, are you, are you amillennial? Are you millennial? I'm like, what? How you doing? I'm Derek. What's your name, you know? And, uh, and in other words, are you pre-tribulation, you mid-tribulation, or post-tribulation, you know? What's your, what's your position? And, and they were kind of asking me that, in other words, to determine, you know, can we be friends? Can we associate? Because wherever you are and whichever camp you're in is going to determine whether we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get along or we're going to go there. You know, and one time I was with uh, some classmates in the cafeteria at ORU where I went to school, and um, we were arguing about the pre-rapture. We were arguing about just this whole rapture theology. We were op- arguing about, you know, all this stuff. And there was a professor, Professor Tollett. He was over in the corner, and he's laughing at us. Or at least I thought he was laughing at us. And I said, Dr. Tollett, are you, are you laughing at us? He said, I'm not really laughing at you. I'm just laughing because I had this same argument 20 years before. I was sitting where you were having the same discussion. In other words, this has been going on for a long time, these debates and these, these dialogues. And you may not have had these, but they've, they've been happening. And, and, and we also argued about things like other things. We argued about the Antichrist. Who is the Antichrist? Who's the Antichrist going to be? And this was another big one. Did you know that for over 150 years, there have been certainty about who the Antichrist is? Every generation has said, this is who's going to be the Antichrist. For 150 years, it's been going on. Every generation has identified an Antichrist. Some people thought years ago, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, it was Mussolini. You know, then some people thought it was Hitler. Oh, everybody was convinced it was Hitler. Uh, Positive it was Hitler. I remember in my lifetime... Uh, everybody was sure, I mean absolutely sure, that the Antichrist was Henry Kissinger. Some of you are not old enough to appreciate that. It's just funny. But they, they're just certain it was him. And, and, and I, I remember this particular uh, professor in seminary, and he, used, he, would, he was teaching about this, and he's saying, according to Bible numerology... And like, what is that? You know, Bible and numerology, there's like this whole new thing. There's nothing in the Bible about that. I mean, there's, there's numbers in the Bible that represent certain things, you know, three and seven and ten and twelve. There's different numbers. There's, there's certainly, certainly numbers that have associations, but, but he was basically saying that the Bible has numbers that represent, you know, uh, if you connect them to certain letters and there's a certain sequence of things and you add them up, if you add up the, the, if you put numbers to letters with the name Henry Kissinger, it adds up to 666. So he's the Antichrist. So I, I, I did that to Tim Hawkins, the Christian comedian, and it came up to 666 too. I'm just kidding, it did. I didn't do that. But the, the point is, people, they, they just get all sidetracked on this, you know, and people, people thought that Prince Charles was the Antichrist. You know, and uh, I didn't get that one necessarily, but anyway, people thought that. Some people thought, if thought in modern times, in recent times, that one of our presidents was the Antichrist. Some people still think that. Uh, uh, so we'll just steer away from that. Turn away, Derek. Turn away. So here's the point. 
we, we, we all, we just don't all realize what, what our, gener- our generation gets preoccupied with this, but generations before have been doing this over and over and over again. And we sit around and we have these kind of titillating conversations and these high and lofty conversations about things, about stuff that may or may not happen, and it can really preoccupy us. In 1 Timothy, it tells us to watch our life and doctrine closely. It's important. Titus tells us to teach what is in accordance with sound doctrine. But what happens is, and this is in your notes, I believe, we must be careful not to dabble in speculative words of prophecy rather than deal exclusively with the sure word of prophecy. And I'll try to make, make that make sense as we go forward, but when we get into the speculative, we, it takes us on a journey into the divisive, into the kind of the, distor- the discordant. Churches split over stuff like this, and the distracted. And you may not realize this, but many dates... This is an example. Many dates have been set by man for the return of Christ, especially in the last 150 years. In 1988, I can remember a guy wrote a book. Um, I was looking it up last night to try to remember his name, but he wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. Some of you remember that. And it didn't happen, obviously. And in 1989, he wrote a follow-up, 89 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Back in 1989. And even last year, in, uh, in uh, October of last year, he was predicting that God was going to come back. And then he predicted it again this May. I mean, it just, it just doesn't stop. There's just this, I mean, come on, you know, at some point it gets crazy. And so I believe, I personally believe that even if this guy or any guy like him was uh, to, to get it right, that, that God the Father is going to change it. You know, he's been guessing, and finally, he's, you know, he's looking down from heaven, and Jesus, of course, wants to come back right away. Can we go? Can we go? And Father's, no, 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 not yet. I'm, he's not, by the way, uh, slow in his return. He's patient because he doesn't wish that none would perish, that all would come to repentance. First Thessalonians tells us this. Second Peter 3 talks about this. And so God's up there, just hold on, not yet, not yet, not yet. Can I get on my horse, God? Can I get on my horse? Jesus wanting to get down there and come. No, 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 no. And then, oh, that guy, he got the date right. You're going to have to wait, Jesus. We're going to change it again because he can't be right because that wouldn't fulfill Scripture. I, even if he gets it right, I'm convinced God the Father is going to change it because it would be anti-scriptural. Matthew 24, 26 says, But of that day, everybody say that day, and our no one knows. Everybody say no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Jesus doesn't even know. So we've got to stop making this so hard for ourselves and stop being, pro- it's just silly, it's foolish. It's getting caught up in all kinds of debates and arguments and genealogies, and the Scripture tells us not to do that. Are you getting this? So the conversation about this kind of stuff's got to stop, and this has happened for the last 150 years. And I'm going to say something that's going to rattle some cages here, and I know that, and please just hear me all the way through. Uh, for some of you who've been here a long time, I want you to know that my, my dad is in a similar position to this, but the modern teaching about the rapture and uh, the, even the seven-year tribulation and how it's going to go down, if you listen to me careful on this, please People that espouse this whole thing, and just to be sure, I want you to know I absolutely believe in the second coming of Christ, and that we'll be caught up in the air to meet him in the air, and so we shall forever be. But listen to me, the teaching is so widespread, this whole rapture theology, but it's, it's ignorant of two particular facts that most people don't know. And so I might burst some bubbles here, but I want you to hear it out. And before I do, let me say that 
Many people, again, they espouse speculative theology and not necessarily certain theology. In other words, they're taking things on what someone else said or they're taking things on speculations about things and opinions about things and they're communicating it as if it's absolutely certain. And it's dangerous to base our faith on those kind of things or at the very least, it's distractive. And so, in fact, I had a guy come up to me not too long ago. He said, Pastor, I heard something you were saying in a, in a message. It was actually a Sunday night service. He said, that sounds like Calvinism to me. And it just sounded Calvinistic. I said, what do you, what do you know about Calvinism? I said, do you know the five elements of Calvinism? He's like, no. I said, do you, have you ever heard the, the flower tulip? He says, no. I said, so you, you're not familiar with the different things, preservation of the saints. You're not familiar with irresistible grace. You're not familiar with uh, limited atonement. You're not, no, no, no. Not really. I said, well, why is it that you're so quick to categorize something and say it's Calvinistic or say it's, this is a classic argument amongst a minority, but amongst believers as we get sidetracked in debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. This, is, this has been going on forever, 150 years minimum. And, and, and yet, we don't really know all there is to know about it. Listen, I study that stuff. I still don't know everything there is to know about it. What happens is we come out with such certainty about things, and then we build on that, a lot of traction about that, and it can get us sidetracked. And this is the kind of stuff people do all the time in many different subjects, and it's amazing to me how much we'll argue about those kind of things, and I would love to just do a little parenthetical on Calvinism and Arminianism, but I'm going to save it for another message. But in this particular topic, like those, I want to talk about the rapture. And here's two points of caution regarding modern rapture teaching. And I want you to look it up. For, I want you to dig into it for yourself, but I just want you to know some things that you may not know. The first thing is this modern teaching is only about 150 years old. It didn't exist prior to this. You might say, well, I've heard this my whole life. Well, you're not that old. This hasn't been around that long. There was a pamphlet that was initially shared this kind of idea about rapture in the, in the late 18th century, Edwin Irving, John Darby. They actually heard about, oh, this is the truth, but heard about a woman, uh, Margaret McDonald. She was, she was a psychic who had a vision about the, the, about the rapture of the church. This whole idea was, was not even known prior to this. And a couple of these guys heard, this, heard about this particular thing and then then took that idea and then looked at the scriptures through that particular lens and this whole rapture theology began to surface. And later, this, was in, this dispensationalist teaching uh, was you know, introduced to the U.S. In fact, it actually was introduced into a, uh, a Bible, the Schofield Reference Bible, and it showed up in the notes. We call them, you know, um, the uh, Bible notes. But like if you look at the bottom of my, this is a New King James Study Bible. And, you know, a lot of Bibles have these notes. What happens is Christians, just to make it real practical, Christians sometimes are not responsibly learning how to interpret Scripture. They'll just take somebody else's interpretation and say, that's good enough for me. And so we value the notes over we value the doctrine of the Scriptures. Does that make sense, what I'm saying to you? So we have to be careful about that. I'm not saying that all these guys are irresponsible. I'm just saying that we have to be responsible to, enough to know how to rightly divide the word of truth and not be ashamed, as it says in 2 Timothy 2.15. We have to become good students who actually interpret Scripture uh, correctly. But classical theology did not accept this rapture teaching 150 years ago. It was seen kind of as, uh, uh, in fact, when, when theologians started hearing about it, they're saying things like, what, what is this? Is, this are we, are there two comings? Because it really kind of taught that he comes, goes, and then comes back again. And so it's because it started showing up in a popular study Bible in 1909, then that started, that started gaining traction and credibility amongst, uh, in particular, English-speaking 
believers. So the second point is, generally speaking, it's only taught and espoused by English-speaking people, and it's only found in English-speaking footnotes. If you were to try to kind of, if you were to, even like you take the Left Behind series, in another, if you were to get to believers in, say, uh, China, Russia, Northern Africa, Sudan, uh, Central America, things like that, and they saw some of this stuff or heard about some of this stuff, they, would, they, would, they wouldn't buy the books. They, would, they looked at them like comic books. They weren't seen as credible. I just think it's important for you to know that. So here's my point, is that we must be careful not to base doctrine on perception, but we base doctrine on actual, solid, actual biblical theology. And, and he, the enemy, I believe, wants to keep us from doing, at the end of the day, whatever you end up believing, whatever you decide to ascribe to, some people are saying, you know, that's fine, Pastor Derek, you can believe that. All I know is I want to go up on the first elevator. You know what I mean? And I, and I do too. I do too. I just, want to admit, I just don't want to have certainty that that's exactly how it's going to go down if it's not absolutely crystal clear. This teaching is very new. It wasn't considered classical orthodox teaching regarding the second coming of Christ. And so it's just easier to just uh, to take that, run with that, and look, what, and look what it has done. It's distracted a lot of the church from doing what's the most important thing. That's just what I want you to think about. I remember a friend of mine uh, you know, I'm not going to do that. It's too heady. I'm not going to do this particular illustration. But just people get, people get sidetracked on that. So now I want to give you my eschatological views in a nutshell. This is, that just means study of the end times. Are you ready? Here's my eschatological views. Here's my end time views. Three words or less. Are you ready for it? It's really profound. Okay. Jesus is coming. That's it. Jesus is coming. All right. What's my response to that? Be ready. Be ready. What's my theory on it? What's my position on it? Be ready, because Jesus is coming. Could he be coming soon? Yes. Do you believe it could happen in this generation? I personally, my opinion, this is not necessarily accurate, 100% certainty, scriptural interpretation, but I actually think we're in the end of the end times. I think it's coming soon. I think it's probably going to happen in our generation, because I think the gospel will be preached to the whole earth in my lifetime, with, with certainty. I believe that. So that's, that's what I base it on, more than I base it on the sequence or how it's all going to go down and all that kind of stuff, whether we're going up on the first elevator, second elevator, or the last elevator. So now I want to give you a little bit more than that, okay? Uh, so here's 21 irrefutable facts or truths about the second coming, and I'm going to share this with you in the brief one hour that I have remaining. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Have you guys ever read the book by John Maxwell, 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, or heard of it? Raise your hand if you've heard of it or ever read it. All right. Wow. John Maxwell is an incredible leader. I highly recommend that book or any book by him. But there was this comedian, Michael Jr., Christian comedian. He was interviewing John Maxwell's on his book, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And John had done a revision of it and changed two of the laws. So John, uh, Michael Jr. was saying, uh, John, is it true that you uh, rewrote the book and did a revision of it and you changed two of the laws? And John said, well, yes, that's true. He said, so, Michael said, so, uh, um, so they weren't irrefutable. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> John just laughed. Anyways, um, I got this idea from that particular book, 21 Facts. I'm going to read them real fast. There's scriptures with them, and this will take me no time at all, but it's really good for you to see these irrefutable facts about the second coming. Number one, you can say amen when I read it, okay? Jesus himself will come again. All right, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, I'll read some of these. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, and with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Number two, Jesus himself will receive us. Amen. Amen. John 14, 3 says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. Number three, we will meet him in the air. 
Amen. First Thessalonians 4 it talks about that. Number, um, I could say so much about that right there, I won't. Number four, he will minister to those who are found watchful. Amen. Okay, so you don't, if, don't say it if you don't really feel it in your heart. All right, I know that whole idea, watchful, is a little confusing, but um, this particular uh, verse, Luke 12, 37, said, Blessed are those servants whom when the master comes will find watching. Assuredly, I will say to you, he will gird himself and have them sit down and eat and will come and serve them. What this is basically saying is he's looking for a church. He's going to do like what he did when he served the disciples. When he girded himself up, that means he took his, like, his, his clothing, he pulled it up, and he got down on his knees, and then he took his clothes and he washed their feet. This is, this is this, that whole word, gird himself. This is what's going to happen when he returns. Um, I'm not saying he's going to wash your feet, but they use the same language. What we know from it clearly is you're going to have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. He's going to gird himself up because he's going to find his church watching and waiting for him. Isn't that cool? Number five, he will return to earth. Who also, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Number six, he will return to the Mount of Olives. Zechariah talks about this. And, and, and number seven, he will return in a flaming fire. Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 8 talks about this. Number eight, he will come in with power and great glory. Matthew 24, 30 says, And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will stand on the earth. Uh, number nine, Job 19, 25 says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. Number 10 says, He will destroy the Antichrist. Praise the Lord. We don't know, we don't know who he is, but we think we do. But we don't know. 2 Thessalonians 2 says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, who the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and will destroy with the brightness of his coming. That's pretty profound how he does it. Number 11, he will sit on the throne of his glory. Matthew 25 says, When the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Number 12, he will be given the throne of David. Number 13, he will be given the nations. Number 14, he will gather all nations and judge them, as we talked about already. Number 15, he will reign on the earth. He will do that. Uh, number 16, he will be given the kingdoms of this world. I love the scripture. Revelation says, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Number 17, he'll be given dominion. Number 18, all who are in the grave will hear his voice. This is really encouraging to those who've lost loved ones. John 5, 28 says, do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Number 19, I love this. Every eye will see him. Say that, every eye will see him. This revelation says, behold is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierce him. Those who believe and those who don't believe, when he comes through the eastern sky, everybody's going to see him. I don't know how that's possible based on what I know about, you know, the globe. Maybe it's going to be because of the World Wide Web or technology. I don't know. He's just going to take over. It's going to be like Transformers. He takes over all the TVs and everything and there he is. I don't know. I've always asked myself that. Number 20, every knee will bow. Isaiah and Philippians talks about this. There's a prophetic uh, interpretation of the scripture in Philippians chapter 2 or that, that kind of references this scripture. But Isaiah, listen to this. It says, look to me and be saved. I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. Imagine that being prophesied in Isaiah. And then in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, it says, quoting Isaiah, 
For God has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of things in heaven and things on earth, and every tongue confessed. This is why we should confess ourselves that Jesus Christ is Lord, because ultimately we're going to have to bow, so we can choose to bow, we can make a vow to bow now, or we'll be forced to bow later. I'd rather bow now, amen, and give my life to Jesus. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this last one may shock you, but it is irrefutable fact about the second coming of Christ. Number 21, we can hasten the coming of the Lord. Everybody say hasten. Hasten means to speed up. Second Peter 3.12 says, looking for and hastening the coming day of our God. Pastor, are you saying we can speed it up? Yes, we're speeding it up. Are you sure it means speed up? Yes, hasten in the Greek means, quickly, it means spudo. By the way, it does not say speedo. Okay, the Greek word for hastening is sputo, okay? It's pronounced sputo. Please don't misunderstand me. There's no Greek word pronounced speedo here. And coming from the pool last week and heading to the beach uh, this week, I want to state emphatically that the Bible does not support men wearing speedos. (laughs) I don't care what you think you look like, you don't. So don't. Can I have an amen? Amen. <laughs> it's not something anybody wants to see. Okay, so I needed to get that out before I went to the beach. This Greek word is where we actually get the word speed from. Okay, so it's, it's from the Greek, then it goes to the Latin, and it goes to the English, and this is where we get our word speed. This is where we get this whole thing about hurrying up. It means to cause something to happen soon. It means to kind of hurry something along. In this verse, it's saying, make the day of our God soon. Make the day of our God hurry up. Make the day of our God come quickly. Are you guys following this? And so when you do business till I come, when you don't allow yourself, in essence, to get sidetracked, asking and debating about really speculative things, and you, 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 are, you are hastening the day of the Lord, you and I, you can play a role in the, uh, the actualization, the return, the ultimate return of Christ. Matthew 24, 13 says, but he who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world, as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. We can speed up his return. Will you stand your feet and let me pray for you as we conclude? This awesome series. Nobody said amen to that one. That's, I hurt my feelings. I, about, I, need, I need prayer now. <laughs> can you just close your eyes and bow your heads as we, as we conclude? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Lord, um, all the study of this for myself has made my, my walk with you more sober and more serious in, in the sense that we're, we're not just playing games. And, and, and as I've said many times, life isn't a, a dress rehearsal. It's the real show. We have one, one shot at this life, and, and you want us to make the most of every opportunity and to redeem the time, as the Bible says. Redeem it. Make it you know, turn it around. Work it for good. Take back what the enemy's stolen. Uh, do the will and work of God with fervent devotion. To be zealous for God. Because our God is a consuming fire. And he, and he wants to be with his bride. He wants to be with his church real bad. And, and he's looking, looking to come back. He really wants to be with us. He doesn't want to punish us. He wants to be with us. So, Lord, would you just help us to see through your eyes? Would you help us to see what's really the most important thing, God? I pray that 
you know, in, in, in any way, Lord, if I've ruffled people's feathers inappropriately that you fix that. But, in, but mostly, Lord, I pray if, if it shook it up a little bit where we just focus on the most important thing, then, I, then I've done my job. And I pray, Lord, that, that you, sh- you just shake us a little bit, God. You make us take things seriously. We come to church a lot of times and we hear things that make us feel good and, and they're very encouraging. And, but this is still encouraging too. It's encouraging us to live right. It's encouraging us to live well. It's encouraging us to do business, the Lord's business, until he comes. Lord, one day we're going we're gonna to feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's going to be an incredible party. It's going to be awesome. When you return, it's going to be the party of all parties. But until then, God, you have work for us to do. And I pray that as your, as your children, Lord, we get about the business of God, witnessing, loving, serving, giving, God. We, 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 don't, we're, we allow ourselves to be interrupted, Lord, doing the work of the ministry, as Pastor Randy was talking about last week, Lord. We, uh, we, we look for those kairos moments, those, those divine opportunities that's, that, that come into our, our, our eye gate and come into our sphere of influence, that come into our path, and we walk in them, and we do what you call us to do, Lord. I pray that in Jesus' name. For every person, Lord, that might be within the sound of my voice, either hearing this online or hearing this in a podcast or hearing this in this room that is disconnected from Jesus Christ and is not certain that if he was to return today, which really, when, if we see him through the eastern sky, it's too late then. And Lord, we don't know when he's going to come back, but it could be really soon. It could be any day, actually, truthfully. I don't say that to scare anybody. I just say that just because I believe that with all my heart. It could be any day. Lord, I pray that nobody, nobody here didn't get that opportunity to bow their knee physically or, or, and or figuratively to Jesus Christ and to give their life to him. And so if you're here today and you've never, you've never You've never confessed with your mouth and, and bowed your, your life, your, your knee, as it were, your, your, and made him Lord of your life. And you want to do that? Because one day you're going to have to do that. Today you get to choose it. You want to do that today? Would you just raise your hand between me and you and God and say, I'm ready to give my heart to Christ and, and bend my knee to him and confess him as Lord and Savior of my life. And I don't want to leave until I've done that. If that's you, would you just say that's me? God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. Is there anybody else that says that's me? There's at least three of you that said that. Good and high so I don't miss it. Praise the Lord. That's awesome. Oh, yes, I see your hand, sister, over there. God bless you. That's awesome. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I think there's one more of you. Thank you so much. God bless you. Awesome. Church, would you just pray with me? And those of you that raise your hand, this is so, so, so real. You know, this is more than just saying words. This is, this is something, this is a decision you're making. So what you say with your mouth, you believe in your heart, the Bible says you'll be saved, Romans 10, 9, and 10. So just say, Jesus. Come on, everybody, say it strong. Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you for doing what you did for me personally 2,000 years ago so that I could be with you eternally. You lived to die so that when I die, I could live eternally with you. Eternity starts today when I establish relationship with you. So come into my life. I surrender my life to you in Jesus' name. Let me pray for you. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray you seal that prayer. Lord, that prayer won't save them, but believing in their heart that what they said is real and true will save them. That the Bible says in Revelation, their name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And I pray it be written in permanent ink. It's settled. It's done. That their sins have been forgiven, past, 
present and future because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that was made once and for all. And so when Jesus comes through the eastern sky, they can meet him in the air. They can have that certainty, Lord, that they'll be with him, not because of a perfect life, but because of a perfect sacrifice that, that was shed for their life. And they've accepted that grace gift. And because of that, they're no longer the same. They're a new creation. Old is gone. Behold, all has become new. I pray that you help them to connect to you, God, establish a strong personal relationship. They start to hear your voice. They get around godly people and they get in a godly place and may that change the course and trajectory of their life forever. And they learn how to be an influence on others and they like, like breathing. They take in what God has given them and they give it away in Jesus' name. And everybody said with a smile on their face, with their teeth shining white, amen. Amen.